So as I've uh, prayed and mentioned, we're starting a new series in the book of Revelation. We started last week uh, in chapter 1 as a bit of introduction. And I use this metaphor to help you get your mind around the overarching purpose of the book of Revelation. So I was telling the story about what it's like to teach somebody to drive because this is what's happening in my household these days. And there's this sort of emotional moment when you think, wow, uh, so-and-so has reached the age and they've passed the test to get their permit and, and now they get to drive the car. And there's a lot of joy in that because it's a milestone and people are growing up and it's wonderful until that moment when you actually hand the key over. And then you get in the car with this person who was in diapers like three weeks ago, and now you back out of the driveway and you're hurtling down the road and you're trapped in this box that's metal and you can't get out. And there's dangerous objects and moving objects all around and you begin to panic. Well, some of us feel that way about life. We feel like we're stuck on this ball that's hurtling through the universe and we're wondering who has the keys? Who's in control? Who's driving this thing? And so when you think about the book of Revelation, the message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ has the keys and he's driving this world, he's driving history, He's moving towards a good place. You can trust him because he knows what he's doing and you can feel safe. And the whole point of this amazing book that we're studying is to increase our sense of confidence in the midst of the chaos and the uncertainty that is so much a part of our world. Because as we come to trust the one who's in control, as we come to trust the one who's driving, who's going somewhere good, then we realize that we don't have to be anxious and that our victory is secure. That's the story of the book of Revelation. So uh, whenever you think, what are we doing? This book is so confusing. There's all these symbols and metaphors and craziness in it. Just go back to that picture and be reminded of that important idea that, that God is in control. God is driving history to his final destination. And because that's true, you can be confident and you can be Secure. So that's sort of uh, how we started the first chapter. In the second chapter, things get really practical and very real because Jesus, through John, writes these letters to the various churches around the what is now uh, sort of the western part of Turkey. Uh, and so you go from these lofty ideas to very practical right now addressing the needs and the problems of specific people who are in specific places dealing with specific issues. And so if you go to the next slide, um, just a picture of where this is. So you got Greece over there on the left and then you have what is now Turkey. And then uh, go to the next slide. And John is in exile. He's on this little island uh, in the bottom left corner. And he's writing to the yellow the cities that are in yellow there, there's churches in each one of those. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we're going to look at the letters that are written to those churches. And here's the really interesting thing about it, is that in each letter it starts off with Jesus describing some aspect of who he is. And it's the particular aspect of who he is that ministers to, to them in their struggle. 
So each church is facing a different struggle, and Jesus is what they need in every case. And that's the important point for us. Jesus is what we need in every case. Whatever our circumstance, whatever our challenge, whatever our struggle. And so as we, as we kind of walk through these letters and see how Jesus is what those people need, we're going to see how Jesus is what we need as well. So would you open up to Revelation chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will pass one to you. Uh, I'm going to ask Russell if you wouldn't mind passing out a few Bibles. Uh, just raise your hand. Don't be shy if you need a Bible. Uh, and, and we'll pass one to you. It's on page 713 in that particular Bible. Uh, and and uh, we're going to be looking at a, a few of these churches this morning. And we're going to be exploring what qualities of Jesus minister to these particular people and then how those also minister to us. Revelation 2. And what I'm going to do uh, in order to kind of help us sort out what's going on here is I'm going to give you my main point right in the front. So if um, we, when we look at a particular passage, I'm going to tell you kind of where it's going beforehand. And then that will help you hopefully as you read through it. So in chapter 2, the letter to Ephesus, I'm summarizing as this, is that Jesus is your sustaining love. Jesus is your sustaining love. So as I read the first few verses, which is the letter to Ephesus, um, be keeping that in your mind, this notion that Jesus is your sustaining love. So here's how it goes. Uh, Write to the angel, Jesus says, of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And just reflecting back on, on last week's passage, the stars are the angels, and the lampstands are the churches. It says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. This is Jesus speaking to this particular church in that particular time. And that you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans, we don't know a whole lot about. The only thing we really know, and we'll talk about this more later, is that they were mixing their Christian faith with the, what was going on around them. And so it was, it was, a, it was what's called syncretism, when you, when you mix two different belief systems and water them down. But we'll talk more about that later. And verse 7, and this is kind of a refrain that comes throughout the chapter 2 and 3. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And this, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. There's the sustaining part, which is in the paradise of God. And as I said, this idea of conquering and overcoming is part of all these letters. And it's 
a theme throughout the whole book of Revelation. What God is bringing us to is a sense of victory and overcoming. That's why this series is entitled the way it is, How to Overcome the World, because that is really what Revelation is about. All right. Now, Jesus commends Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, for their works, their labor, their endurance. They have a healthy sense of intolerance. If people are messing with the faith, you know, they've dealt with it, and their, and their perseverance. But he rebukes them because, as he says, they have lost their first love. This activity of faith has become outward more than it is inward. Let me quote to you what one commentator says about this particular verse. This is from Grant Osborne, uh, who wrote a commentary on the book of Revelations, uh, which is one of my favorites, uh, and I was blessed to study with him when I was in seminary. He says this about the Ephesian church. They had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life, and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. In other words, they kind of have a crusty hardness on their faith, but not much deep depth. Um, they have a hardened ideology and set of beliefs, but it's not transforming them from within. They're just doing the outward things. They're practicing. They're going through the motions in a sense, but the love of the Lord is absent at the core of it. And if we were to try to convert this into human relationships, maybe it's like, you know, with my wife, if I serve her and I do things that I know she would like and, you know, I, I, I clean and we help each other by cleaning or, you know, back in the day changing dirty diapers or, you know, whatever it is, acts of service. But if there's no love that's a part of that, if I don't pause to affirm her or to show affection or, you know, to bring flowers or whatever it is that's going to show that kind of affectionate love, then the relationship is missing a core component. And that's what Jesus is saying about the Ephesian church is they're doing the things that should be done, but it's missing that first love, that core component, that, that relationship with God. Now, if I were to kind of jump on the words of Jesus, I could say to Solano Church, I could commend us for our hard work and for our endurance. In fact, I'm, when I hear the announcement about the platoons, I, I'm just so excited about what, what God is doing through that. Let, let me just share with you what some of these platoons are. There's, on the one side, there's the, the word side. We've got Alpha, which is sharing the gospel, and then we even have some people that are going out and sharing the gospel um, in various places kind of randomly. Um, and, then on, and then on the deed, the, the, the work side, the deed side, we've, we've broken it down into these categories. Um, homeless and, and poverty ministry. So we've got a shower program and we're serving breakfast at Living Hope um, Neighborhood Church. Um, and then we've got the Adopt-A-Family program with City Team. Um, another bucket or platoon is the Family and Human Restoration where we're looking at crisis pregnancy assistance and foster kids and sex trafficking. Uh, and so then the, another bucket, I mentioned this already, was the faith and race platoon, where we're trying to figure out what does it mean to become more and more a church 
where uh, different ethnicities are serving and working and, and together. Uh, and then um, the Count Me In, which most of you will know about, which is twice a year we go out and serve the, the poor and the elderly. Uh, and then uh, there's another bucket, the platoon for tutoring and mentoring, which is a little bit more aspirational at this point. And then we have a kind of a catch-all for other needs um, that there might be. And so there's, there, there's some wonderful things that are happening service uh, for the Lord through the platoons. We also have new leadership for our Avodah ministry, which is our faith and work ministry. And so that's coming online with greater strength. And then last week, Pastor Dante gave a great outline and um, sort of admonishment for our discipleship pathway that people this year, our goal is to get every person in our community to take a step along the discipleship pathway, a step of growth. And he outlined some of the on-ramps that we have for that last week. And so all of that is good and to be commended. But the message of Revelation 2, 1 through 7, is if in the midst of all that we forget our first love, then we've missed the boat. We cannot just be active without also having that infused with a real relationship with the Lord. And so it's absolutely critical that we hold on to our first love. And whenever we feel like we're losing our first love, and, and I'm guessing that some of you this morning feel stalled in your relationship with the Lord. You're going through the motions, but you're missing that first love, and it's become dry, and you feel stalled. And in this text, you have the pathway back into that sense of loving relationship with the Lord. What does it say? And, I, and as I read it in verse five, I, uh, 3, I called it out. It says, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And so that's the recipe, is to remember, to repent, and to do. Those are critical components that come with our rekindling the first love. And what's interesting about this is we're not to stop doing we keep doing, right? Sometimes we think, well, I've got to stop doing everything so I can rekindle my first love. No. Part of the doing is how we connect with the Lord. Part of, of the way that he works in our lives and we see his goodness is by serving. So we don't want to let go of that. But add to that, make sure included in that is the remembering and the repenting, which gets to the more core heart issues of the faith. And I want to encourage us this morning to do a little bit of remembering. Let me ask you this question. When was your exodus moment in life? When did God become real to you for the first time? In the exodus, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and God brings them out in this dramatic way, and they cross through the Red Sea. He parts the sea. And so much of the rest of the Bible reflects back on that moment where God established who he was to them and saved them. The exodus moments of our lives are extremely important. What are your exodus moments? When, when did God bring you through a, a, a particularly difficult pathway? Uh, when did he first become real to you? When did he reveal himself to you? And some of you this morning, you, you may be in the process of exploring who God is, and that's awesome and wonderful too. And maybe over the study of the book of Revelation, God will reveal himself to you so that you will have an exodus moment like that. But connecting with those moments is a critical spiritual discipline because it rekindles our first love. That's what the text is saying. Where we, we stop forgetting, we repent of our forgetfulness, 
and living without a mindfulness of all that God has done. So, for example, how did he provide for you in the past? I hear this all the time when I'm talking to people. They'll say, uh, yeah, it's amazing. When I look back on my life, I should have died, you know, this time. I should have been a wreck. But God was, somebody was watching out for me. How did God watch out for you over the course of your life? Right now, think about, think about that. Um, how did God reveal himself to you? How did God save you? I remember the moment when I was reading the book of Romans, sitting at this little desk in Santa Barbara, and suddenly the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ made a whole new sense to me. And I remember being washed with this humility and this sense of conviction, and yet this sense of joy in the forgiveness that comes from the knowledge that all my sins are on Jesus, and he's paid for them all. When was that moment when the cross became real to you? When was that moment, how has God guided you in the past when you were confused about which way to turn and and, and what, what were you supposed to do? And, and you prayed and you talked to people and you read your Bible. And through that, God guided you. And you look back and you think, wow, I'm so thankful for the way that he helped me to navigate that difficult moment in my life. Or how is it that God has used you in the past while? Um, sometimes we feel unusable because we're damaged goods. And that's true. We are marred by sin. But the amazing work of God is to enlist us and then send us and work through us even in our weakness. That's what Kevin read in 2 Corinthians for us. Um, and remembering the way that God uses you is a way to connect with his beautiful work in your life. And it rekindles that first love, which is so critical to our journey with the Lord. So um, this last uh, April, uh, we had the opportunity as a church to apply for a sabbatical grant for our pastor. Uh, there was only one of us at that time. Um, and so we did that. And there was a team of people from this church. And we applied for um, a grant with the Lilly Endowment, and um, Jason Lau and Jackie Knapp and Dave Monk were part of that team with me. And to apply for this grant, you have to put uh, kind of a theme. And the theme for it was Stones of Remembrance. And the idea was that I would go to the various places and visit the various people and do the various activities that God has used most powerfully in my life. So, for example, it would start off at my parents' house, and I would get two weeks to just be with my parents who are getting close to their 80s and to spend time with them and just, and just remember how God has used them in my life. And so we wrote out a whole thing for this. And, and then the good news was in November, we got the word that we were granted this money. I mean, it's, it's an insane gift. And so in May of this year, I'm going to be taking off through till August 15th on a sabbatical for three and a half months. 
Now, it's been 17 years in ministry. You're supposed to have them every seven years. So I'm a little behind, but that's okay. Um, and this is going to be a doozy. We're going to be traveling all over. And the whole point of it is going to be to practice this discipline of remembering what God has done. Now, I need to share one little crazy piece. Cycling is one of my passions. And uh, I get to go cycle the Alps, the French Alps. And uh, if you go to this next picture, uh, I found this road yesterday, which I'd seen in a tour to France. And I said, if ever in my life I could go ride that road, I want to do it. Now, I know most of you look at it and you go, that's not a sabbatical for me. Um, that looks like hell. But for me, given my derangements, that is a wonderful sabbatical. So go to the next picture. I'm just, you know, this is just for fun. This is what it's going to look like when you're, when you're going up it. Um, and so... Um, so I'm remembering God's goodness in the midst of all of that. Um, this is a discipline that we need to practice. So how has God provided? How has, he, how has he revealed? How has he saved? How has he guided? How has he used you in the world? And it's connecting with these moments that help sustain our love and remind us of our first love. So that's Ephesus. And then we go to Smyrna. And let me give you the, the headline for Smyrna. Jesus is your overcoming promise. Verse 8. Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one, there it is again, the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Now, what was suffered in Smyrna by the Christians there is intense persecution. And if we look back at the history, what was going on there is there was sort of a double persecution happening, that the Romans were persecuting the Jewish community in Smyrna, which was much larger than the Christian community. And then the Jewish community in Smyrna was in turn persecuting the Christian community. They were, they were throwing them under the bus in a sense. And so that's why the strong language against the synagogue in this text that we just read, because the persecution was flowing from one to the next to the other. And the Christians were at the bottom of the heap and they were suffering the very worst persecution in that place. And they were totally spent such that in this passage, in this letter, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for anything. In all but one of the other letters, Jesus rebukes the churches for their lack of faithfulness. But in this particular one, he doesn't because it seems he's writing to this group of people that are just so spent. They're just done from all that they've suffered. Um, they've been afflicted. They've, they're suffering poverty. They've been slandered. They're about to be thrown into prison. And so Jesus comes with this encouraging word. Now, persecution is an important subject for us in the West. Because it's easy for us to neglect. And so when it comes up in the scripture, we almost have to stop for a second and go, oh yeah, persecution is a thing. Because it's easy to forget. Grant Osborne talks about four types of persecution uh, that we should be thinking about. 
Uh, the first one is overt persecution, and, and that's what we, we most think about when we think about persecution. And there's not really much of that going on in the United States and the West these days, um, but it is happening all throughout the world. Christian brothers and sisters all throughout the world are being persecuted in myriad ways. And it's very important for us to connect with them and to suffer alongside of them through prayer and, and, and encouragement in any way that we can. Um, that's an important element of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and you can do that when you connect with, you know, the Voice of the Martyrs and other organizations like that that bring to light uh, how people are suffering throughout the world. So the first one is overt persecution. The second one is future persecution. As we do that, we need to be prepared for a day when we might actually experience tangible, real persecution. Because that's just, Jesus says that's what happens when you follow him. And we've been spared from it of late, but there's no guarantee that we would be forever. And so very important for us to be mindful of the reality of persecution and that it can touch us and to be ready and not to be surprised when it happens. The third kind is kind of interesting, the avoided persecution. So we can ask ourselves, when we, when we see and read about persecution in the Bible, we can ask ourselves, well, how have I avoided persecution recently by perhaps compromising my faith? A really important aspect is to be self-reflective and to ask ourselves, you know, is it in the workplace where I was asked to do something that I didn't really believe in, but I was afraid of the persecution that might happen if I didn't do it, so I went ahead and did it, and I compromised my faith. So we think about persecution, we might think about how we've compromised our faith and how maybe we, with God's help, can turn that around in the future. And then lastly, Grant Osborne says that in this category, we also could put trials in a more general sense. And the trials that the church in Smyrna has faced are resultant of persecution and then more generally. You know, it's impossible to know when you're suffering whether it has to do with your faith or not. I mean, the world and, and, and what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm is too complicated for us to get our minds around. And sometimes we're suffering trials and we don't know, is this... Is this persecution or is this just hardship like everybody gets? And, and, and you, you oftentimes just can't answer that question. But some things that are important to know, you know, sometimes when, when life, you know, if I were the enemy and somebody who, who wasn't thinking about God was living, about a, living a comfortable life, I might do everything I could to keep their life comfortable so they wouldn't start to ask the bigger questions, right? That's how the enemy works. Sometimes people who don't suffer it's because the enemy is keeping them in that place of not asking the deeper questions about the world and about who God is. And then on the flip side, you know, so many times we just don't know, um, you know, am I suffering because of my faith or is it just because I made a stupid decision or is it just because there's something going on in the spiritual realm? Um, you know, am I sick because of, because of you know, attack of the enemy. We, we just don't have answers to all these questions. And so in this bucket fits all of the general trials of life. Now, in any and all of this can lead to a sense of being spent, just like those Christians in Smyrna were spent. They were done. They were exhausted. I think of Paul, who, if there's anybody who's like a spiritual tank, who can just move through the world no matter what happens and keep going, it would be the Apostle Paul. 
And yet, even on his lips, you find these words of his being, you know, uh, uh, fearing even to the point of death because of the suffering that he's undergone. And again, uh, Kevin uh, read that passage this morning. It's just a part of what it means to be a Christian, to get to this place where sometimes you're spent. Well, Jesus comes to the church in Smyrna, and he reminds them, first of all, that they're, they're rich. I love that verse 9. Look at that with me. He says, I know your affliction and poverty. And then just sort of says, but you are rich. Remember who you are. On the outward, you seem to be missing and, and, and losing everything. But you're rich inwardly, spiritually. And then he goes to explain a little bit of that. He says, as he comes to them, he is the first and the last. Um, in other words, what you're experiencing is not the last statement on reality. What you're experiencing right now is not the end. My wife has been saying to me over the last months this wonderful phrase, it's not over. In fact, it ministered to me so much, I wrote it on a sticky and put it on my computer. Um, because the truth of the matter is that whatever circumstance we're in, it's not over until Jesus says it's over. Because he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. It's not over until he says it's over. And I don't know about you, but I have such a hard time remembering that. I look at my circumstance and I go, it's over. And the answer is, no, it's not over. Because Jesus didn't yet bring an end to it. And he reminds these poor, spent people in Smyrna who are in prison and facing all kinds of struggle that it's not over until he says it's over. And he, by the way, is the one, he defines himself as the one who was dead but is raised again. So if anybody can say all this, I mean, the worst kind of suffering is death. That's the ultimate end of suffering is death. And Jesus has overcome that. And so he comes to them as the overcomer of death, saying, in the midst of your suffering, I, the one who's overcome death, have the last word on your circumstances. And then he says to them, I will bring you a crown. So these poor, now think about that. They're defined by their poverty and their affliction. Jesus defines them as the ones who will be wearing the crown. They will be victors. They will conquer. And so Jesus is their overcoming promise in the midst of their circumstance. And that's what he is for us as well. And so the question, maybe some of you are in the midst of deep challenges right now, and the question becomes, how do you access this view? How do you access this point of view so that you can look at your circumstances and your suffering in a victorious kind of a way? And the answer to that question, as it so often is, is by faith. You access these promises of Jesus by faith. When you hear the words of Jesus and you say, yes, I'm going to choose to believe that those words are more true than any of the other messages that are coming into my head right now, whatever their source might be. And any message that doesn't agree with the promise of Jesus then would be a lie in that sense. And we access those promises by faith, by choosing to believe. And that's what Jesus was inviting the, the church in Smyrna to do, was to believe 
who I am over the course of history. And that's what he's inviting you to do this morning in the midst of your circumstances. And you might be thinking it's over. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the first and I'm the last. I define when it's over, so don't forget. Don't be reminded. Be reminded of who I am. And for some of you this morning, this may be how you need Jesus to enter into your life as the first and the last. The one who gets the last word on your circumstances. He's building this case. You know, I want you to become a people who are victorious, who, who, con- who overcome the world, who conquer. And, and you can't do that in your own strength. So I'm coming to you, Jesus says. And I'm meeting you where you are. I'm reminding you that I will be your sustaining love. And I'm reminding you that I hold the overcoming promises for you to latch on to in faith. And then he's got a third one for us. In the message to the next two churches, he's going to come to them as their refining edge. That takes some explaining. Now, Pergamum and Thyatira are the last two churches in this chapter. Pergamum was a politically powerful place. Uh, It was militarily a stronghold. And in Pergamum, the city of Pergamum, they built the first temple to Caesar while he was still alive. So Caesar Augustus had a temple to him in Pergamum. So there was this tremendous political idolatry in the city of Pergamum. In fact, that's probably why it was called Satan's throne in this text, because the throne of idolatry was, was there. Now, the city of Thyatira had a different kind of characteristic. The city of Thyatira was a place of the guilds, the trades, and the trades were kind of like today, but maybe a little bit different. They, when you were part of a guild, a particular trade, it sort of owned you. It owned you not just physically, but spiritually in a sense, too. You had to celebrate the feasts and the, the things that they celebrated as part of that guild. So that's what was going on in Thyatira. It was a place of business, an intense business. And so if you were to put it in today's terms, you might say that Pergamum was like Washington, D.C., and Thyatira is like the San Francisco Bay Area, right? How many of us struggle because the place where we work wants to overown us, wants to dictate not only how we spend our work time, but in some ways how we think and, and, and wants to draw us more and more deeply in. And so in a similar way to Thyatira, we wrestle with that as well. In Pergamum, the Christians were asked to bow to the political idols. In Thyatira, they were asked to bow to the business and the economic idols. And it turns out that some of the Christians were. And the result of that is that they were mixing their Christian faith with a different worldview, whether it be the political worldview or the business worldview. And the result of the mixing, and this is the principle at the core of the message to these two churches, is whenever you mix your Christian faith with a different worldview, a contradictory worldview, your Christian faith will be weakened or destroyed. That's the principle at the core of it. When you mix with the contrary, it will be destroyed. And that's what's happening and going to happen to the Christians in Pergamum and Thyatira is they're going to be weakened. Uh, And so uh, it's hard not to see the American church in these two. And the mixing 
of our politics and our faith, which is so evidently a part of our world these days, and the mixing of our work, the idolatry of work, and our faith, and how the ultimate result of that is a weakening of the church. So much so that the American church has been in significant decline because it's weak, because it's syncretistic, it's mixed with other worldviews. And the result of that is this decline. Now, the church is growing in other nations, in other places in the world, in Africa, in South America, but we're barely, depending on how the statistics go, we're barely holding even in the West. And in most parts of the West, we're not holding even. And it just seems that somehow the church has been weakened. When we use our faith to baptize our political and our business desires, we become impotent. And that's what seems to be happening. And so the message for Pergamum, for Thyatira, is also for us. So how does Jesus come to them? How does Jesus, the refiner, reformer, come to these two places? And what is, who is he to them? And what does he say to them? And the way he comes, he says, I'm the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. It, that always refers to the word of God. And he's the exalted son of God. He, God. he comes with eyes flaming and feet burnished in bronze. And Jesus comes to both Pergamum and Thyatira in this uh, amazing vision. And the whole point of it is to refine them because they needed refining in their thinking because they were mixing their faith with the belief systems that surrounded them. And if you want a good summarization of this idea, look in Hebrews 4.12. In fact, we'll put it up on the screen. Hebrews 4.12 and 13 says this, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus comes to them as that refining edge, that sword that helps to sift through their belief system so that they can hold on to what is actually true and let go of what that which is false. And that's what the church needs desperately week in and week out, day in and day out. That's what we need as individuals week in and week out. We need to have the word of God help us to discern what is right and true so that we don't accidentally get sucked into the belief systems around us, some of which run contrary to what God has said, what God has called us to. What keeps us from syncretism, from mixing our, our faith and thereby weakening it to the point where it's impotent, is the constant reforming work of Jesus Christ in our lives through his scripture. So the question for us, if we resonate at all with what was happening in Pergamum and Thyatira, the mixing together, the, the co-opting of the faith, the weakening of the faith, if we, if we resonate with that at all, the question for us is, are we in the word? 
on a regular basis? Are we allowing God's word, the sword of the spirit, to shave off the edges of our belief system so that it continues to be centered in Christ and the revelation of Jesus Christ? That's the opportunity and the call that's on us as we connect with Pergamum and Thyatira. And we so desperately need this living in an age when, you know, the politics are so frenetic and uncertain and living in an age and a place where the idolatry of work is so strong and so often attempting to co-opt our very souls. We desperately need the refining edge that comes from the word of God. And so that's it. Jesus is your sustaining love. He's your overcoming promise, and he's your refining edge. And I want to conclude then with verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And what we're talking about here is provision and identity. And as we move through this world in all the midst of its chaos and the challenge and the forces tugging us to the left and to the right, and the struggle and the loss that often comes along with that, what Jesus is saying is, if you let me come to you, if you let me enter in and be your sustaining love, if you let me be your overcoming promise, if you let me be your refining edge, I'm going to provide you with the hidden manna. The provision that you need, manna is a daily physical provision, but the spiritual manna is a daily spiritual provision. What you need to navigate this moment will be provided to you. I love this image of the hidden man. It's like secret. You ever meet somebody who's going through all kinds of awful things and yet they just seem resilient in the midst of it? Because they've received the hidden manna. God is strengthening them in the moment. And then he says, I'm going to put your name on this stone and maybe the world's not going to see who you really are, but you'll know. You're my chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed child or daughter. That's who you are. And it doesn't matter what the world says about you. The name that's written on that stone is who you are more than anything else that they could say. And that's going to give you confidence for victory in whatever moment or circumstance you're facing. So the hidden manna and the name on the stone. This is what Jesus bestows on us when we open ourselves to him and allow him to be our sustaining love, our overcoming promise, and our refining edge. So that's the invitation. Lord, would you come to us as that sustaining love, as that overcoming promise, as that refining edge. We welcome you in to our hearts. We welcome you in to the living room of our soul that you might take up residence there and bring us that hidden manna, remind us of our true identity in Christ. And when that happens, we know that we will become a people of victory.
we will become conquerors. We will learn how to overcome the world. And we don't want to just overcome it. We want to share from the overflow of what you've done so that others might know your gracious provision in Christ.